You guys can have a seat. Well, it is uh, good to see you guys this morning. Hope you guys had a wonderful weekend. We are going to be in Acts this morning. So if you guys want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Uh, as you guys turn there, uh, I'll just say, uh, maybe it's just me, maybe it's the fact that I just did a wedding about a week ago and heard engagement stories are fresh, but I uh, love a good engagement story, all right? I don't necessarily just love chick flicks, but I love a good engagement story, and I love, I love it when they're creative, I love when guys go all out, all right? And I ran across a story this past September that really took the cake of any engagement story I had ever heard before, ever in my life, all right? And I get to hear a lot from you guys, all right? Uh, but it was a Russian wealthy businessman who in September wanted to propose to his girl in a way that would test her emotions and her affections for him, all right? And so what, she did, what he did was this, as any normal guy would do, he hired a screenwriter, a director, a makeup artist, and a stuntman, all right? Right, all right? So he goes to no ends and to, per, to create the perfect scenario, the perfect scene, all right? And he instructed her, he said, here's what I want us to do. I want you to meet me at this certain location, at this certain time, at this certain intersection in town, and when you get there, you'll know what to do. And so she showed up. And when she showed up, she was taken aback because she shows up at this intersection and there are mangled cars everywhere. There was just a horrific car wreck, car wreck collision and there's smoke and there's ambulances everywhere. And she gets out, she begins to panic and she begins to run. And she begins to see her boyfriend actually on the ground, all right? And as she's running and she's panicking, all right? Some of you girls are already like, this is wrong, all right? But as she's running and she's panicking, the paramedic stops her and goes, I'm, I'm so sorry, but he's dead. Yes. And so she just collapses right there on the spot and begins to just tremble and heave sob. Not like just the weeping, but like the heave sobbing where the whole body is just shaking, right? And so she has just lost it, collapses, just crying uncontrollably, all right? And then he resurrects, comes to her before he, he, she's even looking up, gets down on her knees and says, would you marry me, all right? Oh. Right. <laughs> all right. I think I've just, again, totally lost everybody, all right? But here's the deal. You got to get the guy some points for creativity, right? Have you ever heard a story, anything like that, all right? He may have a little bit of a screw loose and he may have a little bit of lunacy, all right? But what I thought was amazing and the story broke and as he was interviewed, he, they asked him, why in the world did you do it like that? And he said, I wanted her to know how empty her life would have been without me, all right? Again, still a little bit awkward, still a little bit weird, all right? Uh, I wanted her to know how meaningless her life would have been without me, and I wanted her to know how strongly she felt about me, and so the first thing the girl did when, when uh, he got down in front of a knee, as you can imagine, is her first instinct was, I think I really want to kill him for real this time, all right? And then she got it back down and said, yeah, I'd love to spend the rest of my life with you, all right? So what in the world does that have to do at all with our passage this morning in Acts 9? Nothing. I'm just kidding, all right? <laughs> Ultimately, when we get into Acts chapter 9 this morning, it'll be an incredibly powerful collision on a roadside, all right? Different roadside, different collision, different director, all right? In Acts chapter 9, what we're going to find is that God is the director in this collision scene that's also on a roadside, all right? And yet, since he is the director, it's going to be filled with all kinds of drama, all kinds of crazy life changes that will occur, all right? And yet, God in this story is not just the director, He's also the one who's in the collision, all right? He's going to collide with a man named Saul on a road to Damascus in Acts 9, and Saul will never be the same, all right? His life will radically shift and radically redirect. He was on a path headed one direction, and God will collide with him, and he'll never be the same. Acts 9 truly is not just the conversion story of the Apostle Paul, who before this story will be called Saul. So we'll refer to him as Saul and then Paul, and I'll probably go back and forth and get confused, but same guy, all right? Uh, Before Acts 9, he's Saul. After this, as God will deal with him, he'll change his name to Paul, all right? But this is the Apostle Paul. 
This is his conversion story. This is the first time he met and interacted with Jesus Christ. And the result of it is he'll never be the same ever again. And at least for the apostle Paul in this conversion story, in this conversion moment, God will also not just convert him from lost to saved, from blind to seeing, but will also call him to a whole new trajectory, a whole new path, a whole new mission. All right. And so Acts 9 really is, is not just seminal for the Apostle Paul, but really is key in the book of Acts at large because the Apostle Paul will become one of the chief actors on the stage of the book of Acts, all right? Everything turns here in Acts 9 for the rest of the book, all right? And so really, I, I think as we look at Acts 9, I think it's also not just a story about Paul, but it's also a story about us, right? There are a lot of us who have had moments where we've come and we've seen Jesus Christ, maybe not audibly in the same way that Paul will, but a lot of us have had those moments where God has flipped us around, turned us upside down, right? Those moments that God came before us and it wasn't just a casual uh, moment, but it was almost a collision-like moment and we were never the same ever again, all right? It's going to be that kind of story in Acts chapter 9 as we look at really the Apostle Paul as God suddenly will redirect him, but then also subtly retool him. As God collides with the Apostle Paul, there's going to be a sudden redirection of his life, but God's going to also suddenly begin to retool his past for a new future. And so that's where we're going to head this morning, Acts chapter 9. So if you guys will turn there, actually, I want to start us at the end of chapter 7, really, because the first time we run across this character named Saul in the book of Acts is actually the very end of Acts chapter 7. So the great question is, who is this guy? What's his background? What was he like? Who was he? All right. And so we're going to begin the end of Acts 7, which is really the ending of the story of the stoning of Stephen. If you guys remember from that when we talked about that a few weeks ago. But the end of Acts 7, verse 58, is the first time the book of Acts will record and speak of the character that we'll run into this morning. Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul in Acts 7 was a spectator at the stoning of Stephen, all right? But we're going to see as we go into Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 that he's not just a passive spectator. Notice Acts 8 verse 1. But Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So according to Acts 7 and Acts 8, Saul, who we're going to run into in Acts 9, it was a guy who was a witness at Stephen's persecution and his stoning. He was there not just as a a passive, silent spectator, but he was in hearty agreement with what was happening. And as we go get into Acts chapter 9, look at verses 1 and 2, and we're going to begin to see exactly who this guy was and what he was doing now. Verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul is now not just a silent spectator, but he's in hearty agreement, and he is a key figure in the persecution of the Christian church, all right? As we look at what God is going to do with this guy, I think it's fascinating that you guys get a sense, really, of how radically God is going to redirect this guy, all right? You're going to get a classic before picture and an after picture, but in the before picture, you get a great sense of not just silent spectator, but he is hearty agreement and he in Acts 9 is initiating and very much ravaging the church, all right? He is key opponent, key, uh, key enemy really to the church at large as the book of Acts opens up. Huge guy, huge going right against it, all that God is trying to accomplish with the book of Acts. And so it's going to be quite surprising that God will run into this guy. 
And really the question is, why is he so angry? Why is he so worked up about what he's doing? Uh, I thought, you know, is he this kind of guy who just wasn't held enough as a child? <laughs> Did his parents just not tell him I love you? Like, why is he just so angry? All right. And really what you kind of get a sense of is his background that he was trained to see the world and to see even Jesus Christ in such a way that he was absolutely angry and horrified at what was going on. Paul will speak of himself in Acts chapter 22 as he's speaking to Jews at the time. And he says this, that as he was speaking, when the Jews heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. So who was Paul? Who was Saul? Why was he so bent against Jesus Christ and against the church at large? I think what you begin to see is that ethnically speaking, he was a Jew, all right? And as we looked at a story back in Acts chapter 6 earlier this semester, we said that there were two kinds of Jews that were entering into the church at the time. One was uh, Jews that really uh, were ethnically Jews, but they were also culturally Jews. And then there was another group that was ethnically Jews, but they had been Hellenized or they had been Greek. They had been influenced by the Greek culture and language and the, and the school of thought such that they had ethnic roots in Judaism and, and being a Jew, but they had in a sense been kind of made Greek in terms of culture and sociologically. And what Paul is saying is, I am the kind of Jew that is a pure Jew, all right? I might have been raised in Tarsus and grown up there, but I am a Jew ethnically. And so he was one who was actually speaking Aramaic. So he's speaking Aramaic to Jews in Acts 22. And so they quiet down because they take him serious. They realize, oh, this is a Jew of Jews, right? Paul will even speak of himself in Philippians 3, and he'll say that he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. He is uh, of the highest class of Jews, all right? In fact, he was trained, he'll say, under Gamaliel, who was a guy who trained men and women, or trained men, and it, such that they, they took the law of God of the Old Testament incredibly seriously. He, was, he observed the law incredibly strictly, so much so that there was great pride of being a Jew and great pride of keeping the law. You cannot read Philippians chapter 3 as Paul will speak of his own experience and not get a sense of just how prideful Paul was. He says, as to the law, he thought he was regarded blameless. He held the law as best as one could possibly hold it. And the result of that was that there was great condescension to the Gentiles. He was a Jew that was so proud of being a Jew, so proud of the law, and yet he looked down on Gentiles and hated them. All right. And many from that school of thought would have considered Gentiles today, uh, those that were not Jews ethnically as dogs. All right. There was incredible hatred, not just for Jesus Christ, who he thought was rightly crucified, but there was great hatred for the Gentiles. If this were the Hunger Games, in a sense, Saul would be a tribute, all right? He was a guy that had the greatest upbringing, was raised from an early stage with all kinds of privilege, all kinds of opportunity, and he shows up and he's ready to go and he looks down on anyone else, all right? That's the Apostle Paul, that's Saul. That's who we're going to run into and what's going to happen. And what's fascinating is if this is the kind of guy that is really ravaging the church, what would you expect God to do? Ultimately, if you guys remember when we were looking at Acts chapter 5 just a few weeks ago, we ran across the story of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, two believers in the church who simply made a little white lie and a little real estate scam. And what did God do? Killed them on the spot. Incredibly difficult story, incredibly difficult passage. And so if he does that with Ananias and Sapphira, what might God do with an individual like this? The response is quite unexpected because notice the breakthrough moment that happens in verses three and five. Notice what God does. And so as he traveled, as he was traveling, it happened that he was suddenly approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and be told you what you must do. 
I think verses three to five really set up in many ways, much like any good classic conflict, all right? There's two parties that are at one another. One party is going to have an elaborate show of power that is meant and designed to humble the other party and eventually convict them and blame them for something. And then the humbled party is going to respond with first initial confusion and then eventual conviction. That's exactly what happens here. Notice God is going to have an elaborate show of power. He shows up, uh, lights flash from heaven all around him, so much so that uh, Saul is literally knocked down to the ground, all right? He's absolutely humbled even physically. He's on the ground, all right? And then ultimately, it's pretty clear that in this conflict, so to speak, Jesus is going to accuse him that, that it is Saul who's at fault. And so he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's not just that you're against the church at large, but you are against me. And so in the midst of this conflict, Saul must have been humbled and he realized that he was at fault. And yet what he responds in his question immediately after this is always surprised me. Notice he says, who are you, Lord? I've always thought that's so weird. What is he doing there? I I think the only way I could picture this is a lot of what we guys do in the midst of dating relationships when conflict emerges. All right, let me give you guys an example. Uh, So uh, I don't think you girls realize what a great show of power your tears are. All right. So imagine a guy who's dating one of you ladies and he shows up at your place and you're just heap sobbing. All right. He knows something is definitely wrong. and, And what does he feel like? I have no idea why, right? <laughs> and so we get awkward really fast because we don't know why you're crying and we don't know what we've done, but we know we're in trouble, all right? So that's all we know. And so one of the first things that begins to happen, and even for me, after 10 years of marriage, I still do this in the midst of, not conflicts, but discussions my wife and I will have at times, all right? Uh, when I realize that maybe I'm at fault, but I haven't really figured it out, but it's kind of starting to come out that maybe I've done something, my, my initial response, I ask, I say one simple word, I go, What? It's this moment of just deer in headlights and, 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 and it happens every time instinctually. It's this defensive confusion of what's going on, right? And, and ultimately, it's kind of a stall tactic, right? It's meant to help me just kind of backpedal, kind of assess the situation and figure out how do I best maneuver because it's difficult to maneuver right now, right? It's a stall tactic, but it just holds off the eventual conviction, right? And so Paul goes, who are you? Right? I'm like, what is that? And, you know, I think he's just kind of stalling here. And then finally Jesus comes in with the death nail and really lands the conviction here because it's just a matter of time. And he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's who I am. In case you didn't know. Who else are you persecuting? Right? Who else is showing up to you with lights from heaven? Who else could this be? It's clear. Saul knows. And so he's floored. He's humbled. He's confused. And then he's convicted. What in the world? Right? What a moment God does something so unexpected with one of the most unlikely recipients possible. I think this story is absolutely fascinating because God does something that I think we never would have imagined. He takes a guy that was hell-bent against him and just totally humbles him and grabs his attention. And the aftermath of what he's going to do with this guy is fascinating. Notice in verse 15, notice the aftermath of this, what's going to happen. In the aftermath of this, finally, uh, God goes to a guy named Ananias and he says to Ananias, who's a believer, I want you to go find Saul. I want you to go, I want you to go to talk to him and notice the discussion in verse 15. He goes, but the Lord said to him, go for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the sons of Israel. And so he goes, Hey, this is something I'm going to do great things with this guy. He has no idea what's coming, has no idea even yet who I exactly am, but I have incredible things in store for him. What a radical redirection, right? Think about how radical the redirection is. This is a guy who hated and was persecuting and had rejected Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus takes him and chooses and selects him from rejection to selection. 
a guy that was breathing murders, murders and threats amongst the disciples. And yet he's going to later on be one who's going to breathe the word of God to the disciples. Very spoken word of God. He's going to be a guy who's going to ask for letters so he can go and bind the disciples and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem. But he's going to be a guy who's going to end up writing letters to disciples throughout all of Asia Minor. A guy who wanted to bring the disciples and arrest them and bound them and bring them back to Jerusalem is going to be a guy that God is going to use to take the disciples and have them go out all across the world. Not being brought back to Jerusalem, but going from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What God does here with this particular guy is absolutely radical redirection. On one path and then a complete 180 degree turn the other direction. What an amazing turnaround for a guy that you never would have thought it was coming. Why? Why is this so significant? I think Paul gets a bit of the significance, actually, as he says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I thank Christ Jesus because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. I think Paul realized that if the grace of God was abundant enough for him and all that he had done, then it was abundant enough for anyone else, right? If the grace of God could cover over what he has done, then the grace of God could cover over anyone else. If he could not escape from the grace of God and be put into service, then none of us can escape from the grace of God and the opportunity to also be put into service. You cannot go far enough away from him that he can't still turn you and he can't still use you for his purposes and what he might want to accomplish. I was thinking it's a little bit like an infomercial. If you ever watch any of those where they're selling like some kind of crazy sharp knife, you're right. And you're like, not that I really need to be convinced that the knife is sharp, but they start to cut through a shoe. You're like, Oh my, right. <laughs> and then they start to cut through a quarter. You're like, now that is a sharp knife. Right. And, and if it can cut through a quarter, it can cut my tomato. I bet, you know, like I, I think I'll buy it. Right. I think it's the same kind of argument from the greater, to the lesser, right. If God can cut through the apostle Paul, then he can cut right through you and I. That if God can do that and and his grace can abound over anything that the apostle Paul has done, then you cannot escape his grace and his grace has no problem covering over your life. I think the radical redirection here you see is an amazing story that is meant to show you and I that it does not matter where we've gone, that the grace of God can always redeem us and always track us down and always turn us around. It also shows you and I that it doesn't matter where we've gone. And it's not just that the grace of God can turn us around, but the grace of God can actually also implement and use us for something incredibly marvelous, no matter what our past looks like and no matter where we've been. The apostle Paul is an argument from the greater, the lesser, because if God can do that with the apostle Paul, you're a wiffle ball. It's easy. All right. It doesn't matter where you've been. None of us have gone where the apostle Paul has gone. And you look at what God does, right? And what I love is you look at the way that God redirects the Apostle Paul's life is you begin to assume or begin to think that in light of where he's been, in light of what God has in store, that the Apostle Paul is going to have to just, in a sense, completely throw away his past. The assumption would be that whole past that got him on a trajectory toward persecution and ravaging the church needs to just be shuttled so that God can do something new. And what I love about the story of the Apostle Paul, what God is going to do is not just radically redirect him and turn him 180 degrees and flip him upside down. But what the God will do is also begin to subtly retool his past because it was his past that got him on this trajectory, but it's going to be a retooled past that God is going to use for a whole new mission and a whole new purpose. What God had put in his past was no coincidence because everything in his past is going to be something that God will see a use for and an opportunity to advance his own purposes. 
I, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the TV show Hoarders. I don't know if any of you guys are big fans, all right? Uh, that is one crazy show, all right? <laughs> uh, and, and each week they got some crazy people in there. And so I, I've kind of laughed because I feel like each episode kind of starts the same way, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a person whose life is out of control. Their home is just crazy, all right? And, and every episode kind of opens with a camera guy trying to get in, but like, you can't even open the door all the way. So it's like kind of like a quick angled shot, right? And then, and then the first shots too of the entirety of the house are, are all quick flybys because if they really slow down, you would just be overwhelmed from the very beginning, right? You're like, I can't, I can't take all this in on a slow shot, slow motion shot. I just need a quick flyby and then we'll kind of deal with it later, all right? And then they always bring in some crazy uh, psychotherapist expert who's going to help them and talks about, oh, it's just kind of an OCD thing, right? They just, they can't toss things because they're kind of obsessively, compulsively uh, gripped by the, the idea that everything would have a use, right? But they're crazy people, all right? So, uh, and it goes on and on every week like this, all right? And I always think to myself, I'm not so much scared by what I see, I'm kind of scared by what's underneath what I see, right? Because if you start to pull some stuff out, it's like, that's what's year one, but what about year five, right? What dead cat is in there, right? I mean, it's just crazy stuff, all right? And they always have cats. There's always animals that have just been collected as well. It's just crazy, all right? But these people think that everything they own could have a use one day in the future, and so they don't let go of anything, right? I'm not trying to be heretical, but I think there's a sense in which I think God is a bit of a hoarder, all right? I think as he looks at our lives, everything in our past, everything in our lives is not coincidental because everything could be used and uh, implemented for what he might want to accomplish and what he may want to do. And so God is going to completely redirect Saul, going to even give him a new name. But the very past that made him on a trajectory to be a persecutor and a ravager of the church is the same past that's going to be perfectly retooled and used in such a way that he's going to stand as one that stands and has an impact on the early church in a way that no one else could because of his past. All right. God is going to really radically redirect him, but also begin to subtly retool his past so that God can accomplish something because of his past. Notice that the nature of the retooling that happens. First, he's going to see in a new way. Look at verses eight and nine. So Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus and he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Continue on with me, if you will, even into verse uh, 17. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. Saul is going to see in a whole new way. What exactly changes? I think first and most obviously he's going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ. And so he's going to see Jesus in a whole new way. He's not any longer confused as to who Jesus is. He knows exactly who Jesus is and he knows exactly now what Jesus has done. He's also going to be, uh, have a complete change of mind as to who Jesus' followers are. And I think he's going to have an incredible moment right there in the early part of his conversion. Imagine if you guys were Ananias in the story, and I kind of skipped over it, but God comes to this believer named Ananias and says, here's what I want you to do. I've showed up to Saul, who you, you may know, he's been ravaging the church, arresting all your friends. And I want you to go to him. I want you to lay your hands on him so he can regain his sight. What do you think Ananias' response might have been? Uh, no, Right. <laughs> I think you can find someone else for that mission. I'm going to hang right back here, right? And, guys, and finally, he's going to respond in faith, and he's going to finally respond in obedience, and he goes and he lays his hands on Saul, and his eyes are opened. I think there had been a moment in the very early stages of Paul's walk with Jesus Christ that he would realize that Christ's followers were of a whole different kind, and his whole mindset would have shifted because of Ananias' initial faith and, and obedience. Think about the great risk that Ananias took just to come, to identify himself, and to come and be obedient. 
And so Saul is going to have a complete change of mind of Jesus, a complete change of mind of Jesus's followers. And I think also we're going to begin to see, even as we get into Acts 10, which we're not going to look at this morning, but Saul, Saul is going to have a complete change of mind about the Old Testament law and about Gentiles at large. Notice the discussion that Saul or Paul and Peter will have at Acts chapter 10. They're talking amongst themselves and they say, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. In Acts 10, Peter's going to have this amazing vision. Uh, Meat's going to come down to him. Meat that was unclean under the law. And God's going to tell him, no, arise, kill and eat. It has to happen three times to get into Peter's head. And Peter and Paul begin to realize and begin to recognize that God is now doing something, not just amongst the Jews, but amongst the Gentiles. as he calls a new people to himself. Not just reserved ethnically for those who are from the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles as well. And so Paul is now having a change of mind, not just about Jesus and his followers, but about the entirety of the Old Testament law and about what God is now doing, even amongst those who that are not ethnic Israel. All right. And what's fascinating as you look at the apostle Paul is that he's perfectly positioned to help lead and orchestrate what God is doing in a new way in the New Testament. Think about his own training. The training that he received is going to be used in a whole new way now. All right. Paul was ethnic Israel. He was a Jew, the kind of Jew that other Jews would have respected. And now he's going to be one who's going to be perfectly suited to lead Jews that have come to Christ. Is there anyone better that's able to say to other Jews, here is why Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. Here's why you should believe. And here are the implications for that as we go from the Old Testament law to the New Testament. Is there anyone more perfectly suited for that role? No. He was trained under Gamaliel. He knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. And now since he's seen Jesus Christ and his eyes have been open, he can go back and he can see the Old Testament in a way that he's, that others can't see it. And he can teach it and communicate it. It's not just that he would have had respect from the Jews, but because he was trained under Gamaliel and exposed to all kinds of Greek literature, Greek language, he not only spoke Aramaic, which the Jews loved, but he also spoke Greek. All right. And he could write Greek. And so he's going to be perfectly suited in a way that no one else really was to reach out and to lead the Jews and to reach out and, and identify and connect and equip the Gentiles. There's no one that's more perfectly suited to lead a multi-ethnic new church body than the apostle Paul. And God is going to take this guy who was on one path and, and completely suddenly redirect him to a new path. And going to begin to suddenly retool because his very past that had been such a problem is going to be retooled in such a way that it's such a blessing. It had prepared him for what God had in store in a way that no one else had that background, had that experience and had that capability. I love what God does with the apostle Paul here, not just taking him from blind uh, to, to seeing, but takes the very background, the very training, the very experience, personality that he had, everything retools it, adapts it for a whole new mission. And what I love is what you begin to see is that when God takes a hold of us and he flips us around upside down, our past is not a limiter of what God can do. I love the story of Jonah. I love the story of Paul. Both men that in a sense are running in the complete opposite direction of what God has and God wants. God grabs a hold of them, turns them around and gets them on a whole new path and a whole new trajectory. You cannot escape the reach of God. His grace will always abound no matter where you've been. And he's always ready to use you. And if you'll hand your life to him, he will take your past, your experiences, everything about you and retool it for a whole new purpose. In fact, one of the things I want to ask you guys, even this morning, as we kind of land the plane here, as we kind of get toward the end is this. What is it about you, your personality, your experience, your background that God has not by coincidence put there that God is wanting to use for a new kind of purpose? I want to give you guys a quick sense of uh, what it might look like in your life. First of all, let me ask you, what is your personality like? (laughs) 
how, how has God uniquely crafted your personality for a purpose and a plan that he uniquely wants to use you for? Maybe you're an extrovert. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes to be up front, that loves to gather, loves to connect people, loves to greet and initiate. You're an amazingly person who's wired to initiate and to show the love of Christ. Maybe you're a little bit more like me, who's an introvert by nature uh, and is completely content to be behind the scenes. And that's great, but that's how you've been made. It cannot limit your willingness to obey as he calls, but, but maybe you're, you're content and you're wired for a different kind of role and different kind of service. All right, I think God has uniquely crafted your personality, whether you like it or not, whether you wish it could be a different way or not, because he has a unique role and a unique purpose for you. A personality that does not limit you from what he has, but a personality that perfectly sets you up for what he has. Second thing I'd love to bring up is even the idea of your education. How might God have prepared your own education and your training that you're getting even right now for a purpose that he might have in store for you? Some of you guys are doing engineering. Some of you guys are doing marketing at Wayne or High, wherever you guys may be. All right. I lived at Zachary, that little dungeon. All right. So uh, that was my experience. And I haven't gotten over it. Right. So, uh, but how might your training, even the academic training that you're getting right now, fit into the purpose and the plan of God? I think uh, generically, it's easy to say that maybe your degree is going to land you in an industry and land you in a career that you can represent God to a people that will never step into a church setting but you will walk with them day in and day out and you can love them and show the love of Christ to them and show them what the grace looks like as you live and as you work in a radically different way from them. I'd also say to you guys that a lot of the training that you guys get in engineering and the training you guys get in marketing is a blessing if it were to be utilized even in a church setting. Not necessarily vocationally, but we need accountants, we need marketers, we need people who understand those principles that can help get the message of God out. They can help teach the word of God. They can help understand it. That your very background, your very training very much fit into what God may have gifted you to do even in a church setting, not vocationally, but just as you serve and as you give your life and you give your time. Third thing I say is, what about your experiences? I think a lot of us think, oh, I had this thing in the past or this, I came from this kind of home or this kind of thing happened to me. And so now I'm kind of ruined. I, I don't know what God's going to do, right? And one of the things I want you guys to hear is even if it was sin, whether it was yours or someone else's, into and onto your life, God can still redeem it and can still use it for his purposes to advance his glory. I think one of the uh, most clear things I hear over and over again is I think there are a lot of uh, you guys who come from broken homes, who come from homes and come from families that uh, were not the model that you in any way (laughs) want to see as you get married and as you have kids one day. And a lot of you guys, one of the things I find over and over again is I think that past experience has created an element of compassion and even an element of calling that moves some of you guys even to counseling. One of my favorite verses along these lines comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a lot of comfort, right? Um, But what's the idea? It's like Paul's point is, as we've gone through difficulties, as we've had scars in our life, as we've gone through hurts in our life, for those of us that have been able to walk with God through those things, we've found and we've experienced the comfort of God. And as a result, as we look into a community of those that are walking now through the same things that we did, but later and after us, we're perfectly suited to see it and to move towards those people with a common experience that we've had to identify and to comfort them with the kind of comfort that we received as well. So you guys know Marcy and I's story. We've been through all kinds of difficulty in pregnancies. And I'll tell you guys, the ability to now sit at bedside with a, a, a lady that has lost a baby and our ability to comfort a couple is completely different because of what we've walked through. 
I, I would never take or want the things that we've had to deal with. But in the midst of having to deal with that and walking with Jesus through it, we found our, our own ability now to extend the kind of comfort that we found through Jesus Christ to families in our church at large that have walked through in the aftermath of the experience that we had once just like it. All right. In the midst of the kinds of hurts and experiences and scars that some of you guys may have, as God moves you through those, as he redeems you past those, it may be part of the plan that he has of what he's going to do with you in the future. Your past doesn't limit your future. Sometimes your past God can use and set up for what he's going to have you do in the future. And lastly, I'd say, and this may sound a little bit superficial, but some of you guys have a zeal for adventure. All right. Some of you guys are just kind of, you know, I'm an unwinder. Let me just do nothing. All right. Some of you guys will unwind by wanting to go hike a mountain. I don't get that. All right. But that's awesome for you guys. All right. Uh, Some of you guys, though, are the kind that have a bag packed, ready for a trip, ready for an experience, ready to go do something all the time. All right. You guys are the kinds that are doing summer camp experiences most summers. You guys are the kinds that are doing study abroads and bouncing around, bouncing around, kind of having well-rounded experiences. One of the things I want to say and throw out to you guys is another opportunity to put in your radar is, Summer mission trips, all right? Uh, I think God has wired some of you guys that just love travel, all right? He's wired some of you guys that are willing to live in great simplicity six weeks with a bunch of 10-year-olds in a cabin, right? You can live with little, right? That's okay. But for you guys who have been wired that way, I'd say, hey, what about a different kind of experience from summer? Uh, what if God put on your heart and would put in front of you guys, and I want to challenge you guys to pray about taking a five-week trip with us uh, this summer to go overseas and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Some of you guys have a heart and have a huge uh, ability toward foreign languages. And so I'd say, hey, maybe God's put that in you for a reason. Maybe he's put within you for a reason, a certain zeal and desire, not just for adventure, but for travel. And I'd say, hey, might God do something even different with that this summer? I, I think it's not coincidental that Paul was willing to ask for letters and he was taking off from Jerusalem, going to Damascus, and he was going out. <laughs> he was wired that kind of way. And yet God's going to take that very same wiring and redirect it for a different kind of purpose. And I'd say, hey, camps are fantastic. Study abroads are fantastic. But I'd love to challenge you just to consider, hey, might you spend part of your summer overseas, one of your summers in college? You guys are never going to have that kind of opportunity once you graduate and take off from this place. And that kind of experience, I will tell you, is one of the most transformational experiences I've seen any students walk through in the time that I've been here. To serve overseas for about five weeks with a team of 15 Aggies uh, that are either going to East Asia, to Greece, the land that's flowing with feta, or even to the Mediterranean world, all right, with Muslims is an amazing spot just to have your heart gripped by what God is doing amongst the nations and to see even more in a broader way what God is doing as he works and brings out men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to his throne that will one day worship him. So I want you guys to get a quick little picture of what that looks like in a uh, far more specific way. So I've asked sweet Donette Durham to come up. Donette has uh, been able to serve overseas for a few years. She's going to tell you guys a little bit about her experience and then share with you guys a little bit more specifically too about what summer projects look like. Like, and so why don't you guys welcome Donette. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm so thankful to be here, y'all. Um, <laughs> my life was really changed being at this church. <laughs> I came here my freshman year, and I think it's overwhelming to think about trying to describe how much God has done in my life, but I, that's why I love the Word. So thanks, Trey, for that reminder of grace like i think the word is full of grace like we are not deserving we're broken but god takes what's broken and he redeems it and so i think i just want to give you a picture of how god's grace affected my life i came here my freshman year i was really just wanting to meet friends like i didn't really care about bible study i thought i should but i just 
wanted friends. And so I tried out for all these organizations, got rejected. <laughs> um, and the only thing that accepted me was do lost the freshman Bible study here. And so, yes, whoop, I heard that. <laughs> um, and so it was there that God really changed my life. I studied the word with people for the first time. And then November hit, go missions. I heard about going overseas. And my whole life, I'd always wanted to go overseas. I remember telling my mom when I was like eight years old, Mom, I want to be a missionary. And she's like, Donna, everyone wants to be a missionary. I'm like, really? Okay, cool. Um, like, and so, but I always had this desire in me to go. I love traveling. I wanted to go to college out of state. I just enjoyed new people and new places. And and so I heard about, you know, a trip to East Asia and I was like, okay, that, that sounds good. But I'd never shared the gospel before. <laughs> I thought it was for people who are really good at speaking. Like, this is not comfortable for me. It's not my personality. I'll talk to you one-on-one all day long, but um, speaking is something that I've never felt very confident in. And so I spent all winter break looking at other trips. I was like, I want to go overseas, but I don't want to do evangelism. So um, I, yes, I researched every day. I'm not kidding. So <laughs> January, it was time to start applying for summer projects and just kept coming back to Tradelands. And so I was like, Lord, okay, I'm going to do this. So that whole spring, I was so anxious. I felt so inadequate like, why am I going? I don't know how to share the gospel. And then I went. And I remember my first appointment with this sweet Muslim girl. And I was sitting in the cafe. And all I asked her was, what's the most important thing to you? And she answered, you know, family, my studies. And she asked me and I shared the gospel. I said, Jesus, um, Jesus has completely changed my life. And given me hope and and joy and I remember just being very very struck I think my personality is one that's very empathetic and so um I left there just completely burdened like they are dead like they are apart from you Lord and and so I think um that impacted me more than anything else I'd ever had happen in my life that as I walked the streets and trains and people passed me going to the mosque, they were dead. They didn't have life. They didn't have hope and they were in darkness. And so I think that five short weeks completely changed my life, completely changed how I saw the world, how I saw the gospel. Um, I was sharing with people who had never heard the gospel before. They'd heard of Jesus, he's in the Quran, but they never knew who he really was or what the Bible said about him. I was really challenged in what I believed. People would ask me, like, why do you think the Bible's true? And I'm like, um, I don't know. <laughs> I just heard that my whole life, so I'll get back to you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> maybe I don't know. So I think it, it really, really challenged my faith. What do I know is true? Why do I think that's true? Why do I say Jesus is the only way to have life? And so as I went overseas in that first first experience, um, it really, really challenged me. And so I continued to go on those trips when I was in college. And every single time, I feel like I became more and more burdened for the lost. And then I came back to America, and I saw that there are lost people here 
and just saw that that experience overseas completely changed how how I live here. And so um, I graduated and decided to go on stint, which is just a one or two year trip over there. <laughs> and I think that was incredibly, incredibly life-changing also. Just learning about American culture and how we've always been brought up. I think another thing that was really impactful was hearing the impact that we're making. So like I said, these people are apart from God. They don't know hope. Like like we have been changed and, and they don't know it. So I just wanted to read a few quotes to you from my friends. So you guys really make me think no one else does that. This is bizarre. I'm supposed to believe all three religions, but this is so different. Show me more places where it talks about Jesus being God. I struggle every day to believe I'm beautiful and loved. I just stay awake at night thinking about how hopeless I am. Um, you are all just so good. You're, you're, you're unlike any other <laughs> people I know. Um, you mean I actually can choose what religion I have? Um, it's like we're talking about a different Jesus. Yes. Um, <laughs> I've not chosen one of the religions yet because I feel like there is an ultimate truth, but I don't know what that is yet. And so you have an opportunity to speak about the hope and the truth of Christ. And I think doing that overseas on a short-term trip is a way to forever change your life. And, you know, we're studying First Peter this semester. And one thing that has really impacted me is um, verse 10 in chapter 2. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And how really that's all it is. It is an understanding of who you once were, <laughs> who you were apart from God. You were dead. You were in your sin. But yet now God has saved you by his incredible and abundant grace. And that's all it is. <laughs> that's all that life is about. And I hope and I hope for me and I hope for y'all that we just know that more and more each day. And so I think I learned that overseas and now I get to be here and I'm working full time in an office and have a little cubicle and <laughs> um it's really really amazing to see how God has brought me from freshman year just wanting friends to being completely changed to actually getting to be a light to people and and bring hope to people that never heard to now you know sitting and, and talking with my coworkers and loving them so I totally agree with Trey, and I, I think that God has made each of us uniquely. And so my encouragement to y'all is just to discover that. See how God has made you and and cultivate that. And then come to a greater understanding of the gospel. Like, you don't deserve anything. <laughs> you don't. I don't. Um, but God has completely stepped into this broken world and made a way for us to have redemption. So... Like I said, I don't really talk up in front of people, <laughs> but if you want to hear more about Summer Project, if you want to hear more about STINT, if you're about to graduate, please go on STINT. It's one year. I know that seems like a long time. It's not. It'll go by really fast and your life will be changed, so just go. But really, anyone who's gone would love to talk to you about that. So thanks. Thanks, Dada.
Some of you guys know this, but Marcy and I had a chance to spend a couple years in East Asia, and Aaron Kennedy, who's in back, spent a couple years also in the Trade Winds locations with Dunnett. And so a lot of us have been, and I'll just tell you guys, I think what's fascinating, even as you look at this story with Paul, God is going to give him a unique call in verse 15 that he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that God is going to have him land even before kings and emperors by the time we end the book of Acts. And yet the call for Paul's life was not just for Paul. The call for Paul's life and this kind of call isn't just for Donette or Aaron or myself, but it's for the church at large. Remember Acts chapter one, verse eight, where we began the semester, Jesus told his apostles and he told the church at large, I want you to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, to the Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That ultimately is the call of the church and is an opportunity that you guys have to participate in, especially while you're in college, especially while you're mobile, when all your stuff packs into one vehicle over the summer, right? Praise the Lord. Amen. Right. Uh, and while you guys have like 12 weeks at a time off in the summers. And so if that's something that the Lord would put in your heart, we'd love for you to come talk to us. We're going to talk more about this come November when we have go missions, uh, conferences and opportunities. And we'll bring people in and talk even more about some of this over pizza lunches. But we wanted you guys to have an early read on some of that, that we're going to talk more about that, but just a great opportunity to have the Lord flip your world upside down and to have him turn, have you, have him turn you around huge opportunity. They really were, we're grown and we're shaped as we obey. And as we walk with him through that kind of experience, we'd love to put that in front of you guys. So let me close this out, pray for us. And then we're going to have a lunch. All right. Father God, I give you great thanks. I thank you that your grace is always sufficient for us and that it always abounds over our sin. Uh, It always abounds over our sin in order for us to enter into a relationship with you. But even once we've already entered in that relationship, Lord, I thank you that the the blood of Christ covers our past, present, and even our future sins. That we cannot escape or outrun your grace, that it always covers us. And Father, I thank you as well that you have plans for us that are so far beyond our imaginations that you will wow us, that you will rock us, that you will flip our worlds upside down at times. And Father, I pray that you would allow us in those moments as you show up in our lives, as you tug on our hearts, Lord, I pray that you'd allow us to have the kindness and to have the kind of response that we'd loosen our grip on what we're holding on to. And that as you call and as you question our agendas or our directions or our trajectories, Lord, I pray that we would hear you and that we would have the boldness and the courage, and whether it's missions or anything else, no matter what it is and that you're calling us to, no matter where it is that you're leading, Lord, I pray that we would have the willingness, the courage to let go and allow you to steer and allow you to direct us to wherever it is you would have for us because you have something so much greater in store, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.